We'll begin reading in verse 31, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 9, verse 31 through 43. I invite you to follow along in your copy of God's Word, or listen carefully. And uh, I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares in Acts chapter 9, verses 31 through 43. Then the churches throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And they were multiplied. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Ananias, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This one was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the windows, widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha... Arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. This morning we have an opportunity to begin where we left off with the church at rest, which is kind of nice. The church having peace, having uh, some good testimony in the community because uh, they have conquered their greatest enemy, it would seem. But we know, of course, the story behind it that really it wasn't they that conquered uh, their enemy Saul, but it was actually God who did that. And he didn't do that by destroying Saul, although technically you could say he did, uh, because he made Saul a new person. He did that by confronting Saul with uh, the message that he had heard from the likes of Stephen. Uh, He was then blinded and given opportunity to respond by faith. He does so in obedience to that heavenly vision as he describes it. And then he um, begins serving God. We find him serving God immediately, and this draws a, uh, a lightning. Um, when you turn 180 degrees, and instead of being the enemy of God, of being the advocate of God, being the ambassador for God, it's going to uh, make some enemies, and it does so. And in response to that, both in Damascus and in Jerusalem, the saints had to let Saul out a window get him out of town, and get him to safety before those who were once his allies could kill him. So the church was at rest and grew, it says. Um, They were multiplied, and that is a great way to grow, isn't it? Multiplication, much better than addition. 
Uh, we have not seen that, I think, in our experience here in our country for a long time, longer than any of you have been alive, uh, even the Elder Roberts. So we haven't seen that. The Elder Fries, Elder Zunis, and maybe even their elders. Um, but this is how the early church grew. They multiplied. Um, they were reaching entire families for Christ. They were seeing them come into the church. And, and I'm not saying that hasn't happened at all anywhere in the world, but it hasn't happened here for a long time in this country, in our experience. Um, but it is happening and has been happening in other parts of the world. And, and you hear the, the descriptions of the coming to Christ in places like South Korea uh, and even in China, in India, uh, we see uh, these large-scale conversions. And uh, one of the biggest struggles that the church has that the pastors in, in China speak of is not their government, is not the opposition they're getting from their government. That's not their biggest challenges they'll talk about. Their biggest challenges that they keep going back to is that we have no way to adequately train all these people coming to Christ. There just aren't enough resources, aren't enough trained men in God's Word to sufficiently uh, and adequately disciple all these that are coming to Christ. And so those are exciting days to think of the church being multiplied. So far, though, this work has been gone on, um, I'm not going to say haphazard, it's been, it's been by God creating hazards in the church. The church was, remember, isolated to some degree in Jerusalem, specifically in the Temple Mount. And God, of course, had given them a command that you're not supposed to do that. You start in Jerusalem, but you need to get to Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. And so, since they were very limited in how much they were obeying that, God sent a guy named Saul and uh, raised up opposition, and it says the believers are scattered everywhere. Instead of running and hiding with their tail between their legs, they were out there sharing Christ with everyone they encountered. As they shared Christ, many responded. And the church multiplied because the agents of the church were multiplied. But even in the midst of that, we found the apostles staying put in Jerusalem. And that is about to change here in this chapter where the apostles are beginning to understand that they need to get outside of the city walls. Instead of demanding people coming to them that it was time for them to go to the people with this message. And before we get into that, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to see this testimony of our responsibilities before you to reach out to those around us and to share what we have with them. And as we see the example here in Peter, we thank you for his testimony here and the power of your working there. We pray similarly that you might work this morning in our hearts to bring the, what's dead to life bring what's weak and disabled to strength and usefulness. Lord, we are not really capable of doing that with the words of men, but with the Word of God. 
It is more than possible. So we pray your spirit to have freedom, liberty to work in us, that what is communicated might be in accordance with your word and by his wisdom, that it might be received by faith and discernment and understanding. We know all this comes from you, and so we lay ourselves out before you and pray for your working in our midst this hour. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to verse 32 of Acts 9, and we are now investing in some activity by the apostles outside of Jerusalem. They have been kind of holed up. They have been within the walls and not really going out, although the Christians have, although the seven have. Um, we haven't seen the apostles doing that, and Peter takes the lead. And we find uh, that it says, it came to pass as Peter went through all, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydia, or Lydda, I'm sorry. Um, I know I skipped a few words. Those words are in italics in your text because they're not there in the Greek. We add them to give some understanding to help us, but literally what it says is that Peter went through all. Um, that as, and while they have brought the idea that through all the region, um, I would contend with you that what Peter was really wanting to do is get through all the church. He wanted to see what was going on out there. He had heard things going on in Damascus, things that are going on in Samaria, things that are going on. Um, he has had the witness, the testimony. He is, he's contact, he's, he's been in relationship with Saul. And Saul's telling about the many who come into Christ in Damascus. He's had interaction with Philip the evangelist and seen these coming to know Christ. And, and it's time for him to get out. He wants to see it all. He's realizing that this work of God is more substantial and just within his city walls. That it's going on really without him to to, much, to a great degree. He's had a little interaction, uh, and we're going to see it particularly with Cornelius as he heads out, um, and this opportunity to have a, a God work in his life. But he is going to start breaking down some barriers that I believe were were there among the apostolic group to some degree, who really felt that this was going to be a very brief season of a great turning to Christ, and then Christ would return that it was going to be within their lifetime, maybe within the year or a couple years. I don't know that they had in their thinking uh, certainly an extended season of God's work called the church age. I'm not sure they thought in those terms. I really believe that they thought this was going to be more of a regional thing, regardless of Christ's instructions, and that it was going to happen in their lifetime. And so Peter wants to get out, and he's going to take a little trip out, and he starts... Uh, from what we find, that he comes down to the saints in Lydda. Um, it has a companion community called Sharon. And uh, these are, uh, um, we have a couple of places that we kind of see. We, this is a little bit west of Jerusalem. And it's kind of heading north. He's actually kind of on the direction towards Joppa that we're going to see in a little bit. And if you want to know on a modern map where these things will be, well, Jerusalem is where Jerusalem is. So... When it says they left Jerusalem, that's where Jerusalem is today. There's still the old walls there. You can still walk through these gates, the same gates that Peter and Jesus walked through. You can walk through today. They're there. They are surrounded by a metropolitan area 
but the inner city around with the walls you can still walk on to this day. And so they're there. And as we head towards Joppa, Joppa would be modern Tel Aviv. That would be that area, the financial and, and to some degree the political uh, center for Jerusalem today and out there on the coast. And so Joppa would be almost, if not right underneath Tel Aviv, it's very, very close to it, right beside it. And, and anywhere you dig in Israel, you dig up stuff. You know, they, they go up there to dig a canal or a irrigation and they start digging up ruins. And that's the way it is in much of the Mediterranean regions. And some of the greatest ruins they found was just haphazard. They were just looking for something else or digging something else. And they found one of the decapoli. That's right. So there was multiple decapolis. That would be decapoli, right? Okay. You're not helpful. So they find this. And so we find that, that Peter's heading out. He's going to take a tour of the church, and that takes him outside of the walls, and he's ready to see. What is God doing out here? Because we're not really a part of it. Philip's been out there. Uh, we got the, the, the persecuted saints are going everywhere teaching, preaching the gospel. We have a pretty good church up in Damascus, thanks to the likes of Saul. And, and, and of course, you know, we don't lose uh, track of um, Ananias's part there that he was playing. And so we, we have this word coming, and Peter is going to go out and investigate it. Getting outside the walls. God's doing some things outside of the walls. And so he comes down and visiting the church, I'm convinced, because he says he went there to see the saints. He wanted to see the holy ones, the, the, the believers, those who had trusted in Christ. He wanted to see what was going on with his own eyes. Yeah, I have been given the privilege by you of being able to have this kind of opportunity to just get outside of our walls, of our culture, of our community, of, of just our church or our fellowship, of just our nation even, and be able to see what God's doing in other people and, and, and how big the church really is. I've seen believers in Peru and in Haiti and Cuba and in India and and just be able to interact with them. And the great value that it is, both for them and for us and for me, to be able to see that God is active. He is fulfilling His purposes through His people. That the gospel is going forth in places where it's hated. Where everything the government has to throw at it is being thrown at it, and still the gospel keeps marching forward. Lives are still being reached. And it should excite us that when you hear about what's going on in the Middle East, and you hear about all of these fanatical Islamic groups, to hear that they are hunting down Christians. What does that tell you has been going on for the last decades under Islamic rule in these nations? The gospel's been going on. There are Christians in Iraq. There are Christians there in Iran, in Syria, to be persecuted. What does that tell you? God's still at work among his people. 
perhaps one of the nations that we don't realize how many believers there really are. Some of our closed nations, like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, you know, I say, really? There's a lot of believers there? You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how they got there. They got there because of household servants that came from places like the Philippines. And Filipino Christians being hired by the royalty of Saudi Arabia are Christians in Saudi Arabia and Saudis in the royal family coming to Christ. It's happening. Gospel's bigger than just your walls. It's more substantial. And while what was going on in Jerusalem was certainly exciting, and we look at it, well, now we're at peace. Now there's some some relief there. The, the church is being edified. Um, but it, now it isn't the church. It's churches. It's plural. It, it's, it's this whole body. And, and we find it in Judea and Samaria. Uh, we find it in Galilee. Of course, for Peter, you'd expect him to head beeline right up to Galilee. That's where he's from up there. But he's he's been up there. He wants to see what's going on other places. He heads west. He encounters some believers. And there, in and amongst that, we find he encounters Aeneas. We don't know what happened, how he got paralyzed, but for eight years, Aeneas has been bedridden. And Peter arrives upon the scene, sees it, and as we saw happening in Jerusalem where all the people were bringing their demon-possessed and their ill uh, to Jerusalem to be healed, now here's Peter, and we saw that even just being under his shadow can have that effect. We're going to see that Peter's power of the Spirit isn't confined to the location of Jerusalem. He goes out and he is, in the name of Jesus Christ, going to heal this man before everybody. The evidence is that he is out there doing what paralyzed people did in that day. They were supposed to go out there and beg for alms. That was their responsibility. If they were in Jerusalem, they did it at the temple gate. Um, if they were in other communities, especially Levitical communities, they're supposed to do it at the city gate, and that was their job, to get up, and, or not to get up, and Aeneas is to be carried there, and to beg for alms, and, and then they would be brought back at the end of the day. And Peter encounters him and, and heals him. Make your bed. And we are reminded very quickly of the work of Christ. Take up your bed and walk. Get up, make your bed. Pack it up. You don't want to use that for a while. You've been in there for eight years. Let's get you out. He arose immediately, he says. We find that all that dwell in this community, which include two small villages, turn to the Lord. We find the immediate impact of Peter's presence building up the body of saints there in this region. And it didn't have just an impact on these two small villages. It was well known. By the time we get to Joppa, everyone knows Peter's out of Jerusalem. (laughs) In fact, he's over there in Lydda. He's at work over there. And so when something dramatic happens there in Joppa, they said, let's send for Peter. He's right there. He has finally come out of his walls. And he's finally out here 
amongst all of us and, and let's just send for him. You wonder about why it wasn't done earlier and we're going to see over the next few weeks in the encounter with Cornelius there was a certain reticence about sending for them because there was a recognition that they had a lot of work to do in Jerusalem. But at this point, Peter was ready. He saw the church of Jerusalem established, trained, equipped, growing certainly, but he recognized his own need to leave the walls and to head on out. And now he could be brought in. Well, the tragedy that occurred that necessitated being sent for was the death of a young Christian gal. Unexpected. Her name is Tabitha. Luke translates it from the Hebrew language into the Greek language, Dorcas, and that still doesn't help us, right? Because um, it still hasn't been translated into English. Tabitha, Hebrew, Dorcas, Greek, so, or Aramaic, really, not Hebrew, I'm sorry, Aramaic. Um, Dorcas, Greek, uh, what is it in English? It's antelope, or, giselle, or gazelle, not gazelle, antelope, a gazelle. I almost said gazelle, why did I say that? Gazelle here. This is a gazelle. It's named after a gazelle. And that's what those words mean in Aramaic and in uh, Greek. And so here's this gazelle gal. And she is there. Um, and she is a follower of Jesus Christ. She's a disciple. Um, she has involved herself in good works and charitable deeds. And among those, apparently, was that she made blankets and things for those that needed them and in fact they come in later and show her some of the clothing and and things that she the garments that she had made um looking that's in verse 39 when peter does show up they said here's the tunics here's the garments which dorcas made while she was with them and these are all described not for a living but as charitable deeds that she took it upon herself not just to clothe her own family but to clothe the poor as well among the saints. Does that sound familiar? I know all of you ladies know exactly what that sounds like, right? That sounds, but none of the men do, which is terrible because the chapter was written to men and it's Proverbs 31. What does it say? This woman is not only going to make sure her own house is clothed, but she is going to have sufficient to help others. That this is the virtuous wife. And who can find her? Her price is far above rubies, Proverbs 31 says. That this is the gal that when you find one like that, latch on, don't let go. <laughs> and Dorcas was such a gal, Tabitha, Gazelle. She was such a gal. Well known among the saints there in Joppa. Well loved. She became sick and died. Her death is very clear. She's been washed. She's laid in an upper room. In the midst of the mourning, in the midst of the 
disaster of her loss to the church. They heard that Peter was out of Jerusalem and wasn't very far away. And so they had sent, verse 38, two men to him. And the word there is imploring not to delay in coming to them. That they were going to come and they were just going to beg him, to beg him to come to Joppa. Let's not make this excursion just a brief one out just a little ways from Jerusalem to these little villages, but, but put it all the way to the coast. Bring, come all the way to Joppa. It's not much farther. And they're just going to beg him, please come. One of our dear sisters has passed and we, we love her. We, we miss all that she was providing for us. Please come. And here's this, this tragic event has occurred in the church. And I don't think we quite grasp how significant that was to the early church. But if you read Thessalonians, you'll begin to understand why this seemed more tragic than maybe we're considering it. You see, to the early church, their thought of Christ's return was that none of them should really die of natural causes anymore. That was a common belief. And that's why Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, I know there's people out there who are telling you this, but that's not the case. Just because you die of natural causes doesn't mean you're going to miss out on the coming of Christ. And he has to write 1 Thessalonians to correct that. And so the early church was kind of uh, enveloped in this idea that Christ's return is very soon. And so the idea of dying before that was strange to them. They understood the martyrs, but they had a very special place before God. But what about natural causes? She just got sick and died. But we know what her history was. It wasn't her sin. It wasn't any of that. She was a woman known for her good works, who was, who was pleasing God, who was a follower of Jesus Christ. How could this happen? This isn't supposed to happen among God's people. And this is the prevailing attitude within the church and and it could easily bring confusion and and doubt and dismay there when it shouldn't. Tragic event. Unforeseen. So they send to Peter, say, please come help. I'm not sure that they were expecting what was going to happen. I think they were as equally concerned that they be well instructed. What does this mean? What does it mean when one of our own gets sick and dies? They're imploring, not necessarily with an expectation of him raising her from the dead. I, I Maybe there was some thought to that. But the indication here is that they are saying, listen, gazelle, she was, she was a follower of Christ. Look at her good work. Look at what she made for me. And you can just imagine the people in the church bringing it forward saying, she made this for my last birthday or last Christmas. They have Christmas yet? No. They didn't. Passover. Last Passover. 
You know, so here's just she made for me. And, and, and it's almost like, how could this happen to her? And to put it in our vernacular, I think probably one of their biggest issues they wanted to discuss with Peter was, how can a bad thing happen to such a good person? Sound familiar? It's a theme we've carried in Scripture regularly, that we revisit that, whether it be in the life of men like uh, David who walk with God, and, and how can anything bad happen to him? How can he be hunted by somebody that he was serving so faithfully? How can he have to run out in the wilderness and pretend to be a madman when he's the anointed of God? How can that happen? Men like Job. How can it be that a man who walked perfectly before God, that God would take everything away from him that he loved? How can that be? You can almost imagine the church coming to Peter and say, how can this be? How could, of all people, this lady get sick and die? We don't find any fault in her. How, what, does, what is God doing? So they implore them. Implore Peter, come with us. He goes. We're not told any background of what he expected or anticipated. They bring him into the room where her body lay. The widows are weeping. Adding to their grief is her good works, her charitable deeds, those reminders they had of her. And Peter just cuts off the interaction right there and says, just leave the room. Just leave the room. He literally, when it says put them all out, he just, get out. We find the event of him kneeling down, praying before God and calling out and inviting Tabitha to rise. And Tabitha, of course, wakes. And we can talk about, again, swooning and comas and things like that, but the Bible doesn't lie. She was had gotten sick. She had died. She had been washed. She had been laid in the upper room. She had been there for some time. Peter says, interesting, verse 40, it doesn't say Peter said to her. It says Peter said to the body. (laughs) He knows he's talking to an inanimate thing. He's talking to a body. He's talking to a corpse. He says, Tabitha, gazelle, arise. Very simple. She opens her eyes, sees Peter, sits up. He's going to help her out of bed or out of wherever she's laid out. Could be a table. And then he calls the saints and widows. They come in. And he gives her to them alive. The response is going to be many going to believe in the Lord. The fact is, is that Something bad happened to Gazelle. Something bad happened to her. She got sick and she died. And by the way, she died again later. 
because he's not alive today. And we can look at this and say, well, why? Look at all the... She, we have nothing derogatory said about this gal. A follower of Christ. She wasn't, she just didn't do a couple of good deeds every now and then, so she was full of it. What she was known for everywhere was for this good work that she would do for people, that she cared about those who needed clothing. And maybe some that didn't. That they would have something new, something fresh, something she's made. She got sick and died. Why? Well, we know the story, and so we can come to the conclusion, we can understand it, that here is an opportunity for the power of God to be revealed in Joppa, that it is just as powerful in Joppa as it was in Jerusalem. It is just as, as effective there as anywhere. And here by Peter's words and his prayer and by the power of the Spirit of God uh, upon this, she is reanimated and brought back to life, which again shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said, Peter, apostles, you're not only going to do the works I do, you're going to be doing greater works than these. When we see Jesus bring Lazarus out of the grave alive, it shouldn't surprise us that Peter has that same capacity for Christ said he would and the apostles. But I want to get back to two themes. So yeah, kind of a double-barreled shotgun this morning. And I want to come back to the first theme I've already introduced fully, but I first want to come to the second theme. Why a bad thing happening to such a good person? Questions have been asked throughout Scripture, and God's faithfully answered it. To such a degree that I start to wonder why we keep bringing it up again, when the answers are given to us so many times in God's Word. Why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or his parents? Jesus said, nobody sinned here. This man was born blind so he could be healed. (laughs) so that I can be glorified today. He has spent his entire life in darkness so that this day could come where I am glorified in your midst by healing him, a man born blind, something no one's ever done. Why a bad thing happened for God's pleasure, for God's purpose? Why is a godly couple left childless decade after decade after decade after decade so that God could come in and give them a child like John the Baptist? So that God could come in and give them a child like Isaac? And we can look over the decades of emptiness and loss. And by the way, there's another one example I want to use, a child like Samuel. And we can look over those decades and decades. And if you don't think those moms, future moms, were suffering during that time of childlessness, you do not understand the ancient world. They were made fun of. They were 
ignored. It was assumed that God had cursed you if you couldn't have children. Decades they suffered that indignation. To what end? So that God could work his pleasure in them one day. You see, the answer to the question is a very simple one. Why do bad things happen to God's good people? And the answer is so that one day God can work his pleasure in them. And that is why we encounter the disasters of life with joy, knowing that there is a future that God has in store for us. And that the longer this goes on in these days, the more impacting the work of God is in that day. But between the initiation of that and that day of his powerful working, I have to be faithful. And so Job was faithful and he wouldn't sin against God. He was invited to by some friends, but he refused to sin against God. Why? So that God one day could use his testimony to reach not just one generation, but all generations. Why? Was it necessary for a young shepherd boy to be hunted down by the king of Israel so that one day he'd be exalted by God's work in his life? And Israel would know this is the Lord's anointed. And this is a man now that will humbly walk before his God. The answer is given again and again and again in Scripture to such a degree that we must encounter the disasters of life, whether they are physical, whether they are relational, whether they are with our affections, whether they are with our material things, whatever they are that we are encountering, where we look and say, what did I do to deserve this, Lord? Or worse, how dare you, God, after all the good I did for you? How could you make me sick and die? Could you imagine the gazelle saying that to God? Tabitha, Dorcas, how dare you after I've served you like this? Those words can never cross our mouth, let alone our minds. If we have any basic understanding of the scripture. God has a future. And he plainly declares that he will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That in that future, God can even work in the disasters that strike our life, um, sometimes out of the blue, sometimes uh, we kind of put the lightning rod up ourselves and invited it, frankly. Um, But When the disasters come, we can wait on the Lord. Why in the world would God allow Tabitha to get sick unto death and then die? Well, by that means, 
he was glorified. Because the fact is, is that she hadn't died, she wouldn't have never gotten raised. <laughs> I find it interesting that many Christians want God to do wonderful things in their life as long as they're comfortable the whole time. And for some reason we forget that in order to experience crossing the Red Sea on dry ground, you have to be pinned up against the Red Sea by an Egyptian army. We kind of overlook that part, don't we? And maybe there are some places in your life right now where you feel like, I'm kind of pinned there, I'm ready for God to do some things. He will. He will. He's promised. Wait on the Lord. For Dorcas, I'm not sure she would have really wanted to come back, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Please don't call anybody from anywhere to come and pray in the room with my corpse, okay? Because I ain't coming back unless God makes me. But I really hope that doesn't happen. So don't pray this kind of praying. You guys know what's going on. We have a future, and it's not in these bodies. We have Thessalonians written for us. We've figured it out. This isn't going to bring confusion, anyone's death. Um, but trouble does. It still brings doubt. It still brings dismay among God's people. And it shouldn't. First of all, you should expect it in this world. Because this is a cruddy place. Would you agree? This is a cruddy place. There's wicked people doing wickedly, and the more you try to stop it, the worse it gets. This is just a cruddy place. Our hope isn't in this place. You're dealing with cruddy people who let you down all the time, me included, who are weak, frail, untrustworthy. It's just that kind of world. So why do we demand of God that we experience nothing but comfort in this world? This isn't where our hope lies. And so when we make statements like, well, I would rather suffer and have a testimony to those in the midst of that, that though this come, yet I will not curse God. Though he strike me. Though he do anything to me within the realm of this world, I will not turn away from him. Oh, that that would be your testimony. No matter what, I will follow him. Isn't that really the evidence that your salvation is significant, really means something, is when it's tested? We talked about this last week. Though he strike me, though God himself come to bear against me, I will not curse his name. I will not leave off his service. I will not do unrighteousness. By coming to God with any kind of claim against him, for he has done nothing but for me. And even if I am blinded for most of my days, even if for eight years, I have to be paralyzed and laying on a bed. 
If that bring God's pleasure in the end on that day, whatever day that is, that God is going to bring it to light, his purposes. Frankly, the longer it goes on that you endure suffering and trust in Christ, the more powerful the evidence of the deliverance is. That we have a hope in that day that all will come to light and that God's pleasure has been manifest not in the process of my suffering but in the manifestation that that trust in Him comes to fruit, comes to glory. A man paralyzed for eight years. A lady dead. Laid out on a slab ready for burial. Why? So that when Peter decides to leave his four walls, there's work to be done. Which brings us to the second theme I want to draw out of here. And that is the necessity of us leaving our comfort zone to do the work of God. And Peter is going to do more than just change his locality. That's the first step. And God has got a lot more steps for Peter (laughs) of getting him outside his comfort zone. Um, But at first, you know, remember, Jerusalem really isn't his home, but that's where everything's been going down. I mean, this is where the fellowship of the 12 is at. This is where um, the the temple is out and the teaching opportunities abound there. And, and, uh, this is where Christ was died and was buried and risen again right there. And so the attachment is, is powerful. And, and I've been to the garden too in Jerusalem. And I got to tell you, I didn't want to leave either, frankly. If I had my choice, I'd still be there. I might have sent for some of you, but I don't know. No, just, <laughs> a few of my family might have been able to come back and join me, but I don't know. God doesn't call us to stay there in the comfort zones of life. And just as we expect the Christian life to be comfortable all our days and never encounter any problems, to some degree we set ourselves up never to leave the four walls. Peter takes a step outside and he discovers that there's work to be done. There are needs that need to be addressed. There are people ready to be reached. There is the power of God that he wants to extend well beyond what's going on right here where I'm comfortable. And we saw Stephen leaving and and going off to those synagogues that the apostles had no contact with. We saw Philip going out there. And so instead of leading now... Peter is kind of behind this, uh, on, on what's going on. He's, he's kind of lagging. But he steps out. God starts to work. And I see at the evidence at the end of this chapter that it's starting to click with Peter. <laughs> he goes and stays with, of all people, a tanner. Now, we don't know much about tanning. Um, some of you like to wear leather. Some of you have leather couches. You have no idea about tanning. Um, leather is a dead animal skin, right? That they have to soak in chemicals that they, or there's other ways of tan that don't use chemicals. That's probably the way they tan there. Um, every animal's brain is large enough to tan its own hide with. 
there's a little nugget of information for you. So yes, if you died, we could tan your hide with the contents that are in your skull. Okay, it's called brain tanning. Um, not a very pretty process. In fact, if you participate in that process, you are disqualified from getting on the Temple Mount till you are ceremonially cleansed. Where has Peter been ministering? On the Temple Mount, Solomon's porch. By spending time with a tanner, coming in contact with all the dead critters he's got there, he has just disqualified himself from going onto the Temple Mount for a season till he gets ceremonially clean. Takes a little while. He has to do washings and he has to do all this work to get ceremonially clean so that he can go back on the Temple Mount. That's pretty phenomenal. Peter's not just taking a step out in, out of the walls of Jerusalem to minister, but he's also taking a step beyond his comfort level. But he's still with a Jewish guy. This is a tanner. And he's there living at the house of a tanner, and we're going to find him there next week as we find God saying, I am ready to take you places you've never even dreamed you could go. (laughs) Or ever wanted to. But it begins by recognizing that real ministry requires us to take a step away from the comfortable into the uncomfortable. I find very few churches operate on that principle. We try to bring people into ministry wherever they're comfortable. I'm not sure that that's the right approach at all. If it were left to me to be in comfortable ministry, I would not be here in front of you behind this pulpit. This is extremely uncomfortable for me. I've gotten used to it because I've been at it for 30 years. I used to get physically ill every Sunday morning. It's uncomfortable. Because Kirk doesn't like doing this. I'm a very shy, very private person. And God is pleased to use our weaknesses to his glory. But it demands a willingness to get out of Jerusalem. It demands a willingness from us to say, I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord. And I'm okay being uncomfortable for the rest of my days, if necessary. And Peter's going to struggle. Oh, we're going to see him struggling, not just next week and the week after that, but but a long time future. Peter's still going to struggle over the, the discomfort of the ministry that God's directed him to. But he's going to do it. He's going to have to be corrected by a fellow servant of God along the way. He's going to have to be rebuked. He's going to have, but he's going to stand. He's going to say, I don't like it any more than the rest of you, but if God says it, let's do it. It's time that we are willing to put aside 
what we feel comfortable with and recognize God's call for you to ministry is more than likely going to require something of you that you don't think you have because it's not of you. It's of his spirit. But to really investigate that, you've got to be willing to take a step. You've got to be willing, like Peter, just take a step. Get out of Jerusalem. Get out of the walls. Be willing to go where you're not necessarily comfortable, where, you, where you're not... You don't know if things work out there the same way they've worked in here, uh, in where you've always done it this way. Oh, be ready to say, I'm willing to go and to do something that I really don't think I'm qualified or, or capable of doing. But if God can use me that way, then praise his name. And perhaps these two principles come together right here, that God does these disasters in your life so that you can be used of him in a very different capacity than you ever thought you could. Dorcas was really good at knitting or sewing or whatever she did to make all those, weaving. But God says, I got more for you than that. (laughs) So get sick, die. I have more for you than that, than sewing for me. She's got to come back to life to serve her Savior in a very powerful way. Do you think that was a little discomforting for this lady? <laughs> That's pretty discomforting. Yeah, to serve me, you're going to have to get sick and die. Now, can you imagine if God gave us warning? Okay. Here's God showing up at Gazelle's room. Gazelle, you want to serve me more? Oh, yes, Lord. Okay. You're going to contract an illness tonight. A couple weeks from now, you're going to die from it. That's going to really help. Serve me. Okay, God. Sounds great. Now now you're starting to wonder why God doesn't tell you ahead of time what it takes to leave your comfort zone to really minister for him. And so we trust him day by day. And Dorcas trusted him day by day. She died, but was risen again to serve him more powerfully than she ever could do with all of her sewing. She had the testimony of Lazarus. Many people couldn't deny he was dead three days. Now he's walking around. What can we say against Jesus? Well, can you imagine the people in Joppa? The lady was dead. Washed, laid out, ready for burial. What can we say against this Jesus that Peter preaches? But it could only happen if she got sick and died. Serving God outside your comfort zone isn't easy. I never said it would be. But it is powerful if we're ready and willing. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us, for the testimony of Peter willing to get outside of Jerusalem and and saints willing to suffer for years in bed, even illness and death, if it served your kingdom. Lord, give us that kind of spirit. We know it's not of this flesh, but give us that kind of spirit to face the disasters of life 
knowing that on that day, whatever it is in your plan, that your name will be glorified. And for that day, Lord, we press on, forgetting what's behind and looking only for what is ahead. Help us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.